Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 7, Losing the Peace. We now have the main political pieces on the board for Italy in the immediate post-war days. The socialists count amongst themselves the working proletariat, concentrated mainly in the north, and like to keep their distance when engaging with the other factions. The PPI, the Populist Catholic Party, had recently formed as a catch-all for those disillusioned with the liberals and unwilling to throw in with the socialists. The traditional factions of liberals find themselves in a terminal decline, although they did not realize that quite yet. Just the opposite. Given the reluctance of the socialists and the PPI to taking on political leadership, they would find themselves still in effective control of actually governing the country. The fascists are there too at this point. But their road to Rome is a long and unlikely one, so let's get started on how that all, somehow, played out. In the aftermath of the Great War, the most ascendant political movement in Italy were the Socialists. And as events play out, it will be the Socialist gains during the two red years that allows for a fascistic reaction. Their boycotting of the traditional political rat race actually kind of worked out in their favor at this particular moment, popularity-wise. All the wild promises the government had made of a better life in order to rally the population at the end of the war had been broken. And in their place were all the signs of an economic recession. As the group that stayed out of government, the socialists weren't associated with any of that. In fact, their promises of material equality among all Italians were really starting to catch on amongst the population embittered that wartime victory did not bring peacetime benefits. Plus, the success of the revolution over in Russia galvanized the movement in Italy, leading it to reckon that now was the time to start pushing against the capitalist system that had lost much of its legitimacy. This new confidence freaked out the business and property owners, fearful of losing their control of society. But there wasn't much they could yet do. The liberals weren't ready to start a civil war, and the fascists were barely even a thing. One factor that did play against the popular support of the socialists was their anti-war stance. The workers had, by and large, done what was asked of them, especially during the dark days after Caporetto. But the party's ideology had never budged or wavered in terms of its stance on militarism. Remember that international socialism considers nations a vanity, and wars among them a terrible excuse to bleed the working class. Nationalists, however, didn't see it that way and thought their pacifism treasonous. And being rooted in nationalism, fascists really, really hated the socialists for their stances. Ironically, Mussolini had been a socialist himself, but had been thrown out when, as the editor of the main socialist newspaper, he started advocating for Italy to join the fight. In case you're wondering, no, he did not take the banishment well at all and this grudge would prove to be historically prodigious. He exploited the constant accusations leveled against the socialists of being foreign sympathizers and sellouts. Many veterans returning back home did not take kindly to being denounced as being the guard dogs of an unforgiving capitalistic order, which was a typical socialist denunciation of militarism. The fascists, on the other hand, took deliberate steps to reach out and recruit veterans, they found a receptive audience among the junior officers being discharged, probably because those men had developed a taste for command and some measure of status that they weren't going to get in civilian life otherwise. The rank and file were 
more ambivalent about ideology as their immediate concerns were how not to immediately fall back into grinding poverty once returning to civilian life. But the lower-level soldiers, by and large, found the material promises made by the socialists more enticing than that offered by the fascists. One other problem the fascists were going to run into for a long time, in a lot of ways for its entire existence, was its immaturity. This is in stark contrast to the socialist movement, which had been built up over generations. Fascism was a new movement that had not conclusively defined itself or built a real base from which to work from. The so-called fascists of the first hour were few in number, and the group, barely even a party at this point, was dwarfed by everyone else. But they had an advantage in that they really didn't have a lot of respect for rules. They lived in a society that was ever-increasingly in turmoil. It was a situation of not having much to lose and so very much to gain. All they needed to do was have the will to go beyond the bounds of society and begin taking what they wanted. Their opening move came in April 1919, when the fascists in Milan busted into the offices of the socialist newspaper Avanti, which had been Mussolini's old rag, and tore the place up. This was the opening salvo in what would be two years of street violence. And, well, also back road violence in the case of rural areas, with fascists forming impromptu gangs to harass socialists, while the authorities, by and large, stayed out of the way. This escalation is special because it signaled that political violence immediately, immediately became a formalized activity in the fascist movement, and in response would eventually result in the socialists organizing their own militias to protect themselves. And to carry out this violence, to harness the counter-revolutionary energy of this young movement, the party formed the squads. Yes, things were simpler at the start, and that's what they were referred to. Members were squadrists. There wasn't a whole lot of organization, and the size and success of the squadrists really depended on the charisma of local leaders. These guys would take up the title of Ross, which was an Ethiopian term for a local commander or chief. And it was also one of the few times when a fascist title was actually as neat as they thought it was. And even that they cribbed from a nation they would in due course come to oppress. Each Ross had a broad latitude of action to work with, what with Mussolini's personal authority still being relatively weak in the new movement. The most successful Ross would become fascist leaders in their hometown cities, and would come to dominate their turf once their fortunes took off. The heartlands of fascism were the north of Italy especially in the Po River Valley, Tuscany, and eastern Piedmont. And since Italian society was so localized, and since the fascist party was so young, it was seen as a potential gateway for those frustrated with the status quo to fight against its constraints, without being associated with the discredited elites. These squads and their commanding Ross would eventually become the infamous Black Shirts. At this initial time, though, they were an even more motley crew than their eventual successors. There weren't any official uniforms, and their backgrounds were varied. Many of the ex-servicemen came from the Arditi, which translates to the Daring Ones. They were specialized shock troopers, tasked with breaking the strongest enemy positions through close-quarters fighting and judicious use of grenades, pistols, and knives. If they sound like the German stormtroopers to you, they operated in a very similar manner. And much like the stormtroopers over in Germany, these guys did not adjust well upon the end of the war. Being asked to fight the most gruesome tr of trench battles was a dehumanizing affair, 
and many did not feel sufficiently rewarded for what they had risked and the harm they had suffered. That, and there wasn't a whole lot of support to aid in transitioning back to civilian life, which meant the squads offered some kind of continuity. While they were probably the most dangerous subset, they weren't alone. There were, of course, nationalists who were angry at Italy not getting more war spoils. Oftentimes, these were folks who had taken part in the street agitations that had helped get Italy into the war in the first place, so this was familiar territory for them. And there were also the sons of upper- and middle-class families who felt threatened by the socialists. Their parents might have been liberals, but this younger generation wanted to take a more active hand in protecting their class interests. A common thread was that they were generally younger men who were facing an uncertain future and trying to reassert their idea of control over their lives and the world around them. Much like similar groups in the modern day, these squads offered an outlet for frustrated energies, and a street battle at least offered the prospect of being able to point to something and say, hey, I'm out there doing something. For those who had grown disillusioned with a corrupt democracy, where the country either had no vision with the liberals or a frighteningly egalitarian one like the socialists, it seemed like the only thing left for them to do. They would take action, and they would not waste time at elections. After all, when had elections ever helped anything up to this point? The fascists also recruited from the so-called ex-left, men like Mussolini, who may have been socialists or had socialist leanings, but had broken with that movement, usually over disagreements of nationalism and class struggle. Oftentimes they came from a syndicalist background. Just as an aside, syndicalism is a leftist concept wherein workers would form labor organizations to impose their will on the industry they worked in. Think a labor union, but much more active in controlling and managing the trade they work in. Men such as Michel Bianchi came from this ex-left background and wanted to thoroughly unionized workers for the benefit of a nationalist agenda. The idea was similar to the encouragement of trade unions during the Great War, as the creation of a workers' collective would mean engaging labor as a unit and not as individuals, which also fit in with the fascist idea of streamlining the economy and creating mechanisms of control. These nationalist syndicates would report ultimately to Il Duce, of course, and would provide a direct line of control from the national leader to the worker. This aroused the suspicions of the more free-market fascists, but that was a battle for another day. And it's not like contradictory ideology was an issue, as long as it advanced the interests of the overall movement. Another prism of the fascist kaleidoscope worth knowing are the futurists. These guys are more of a philosophical or even spiritual branch of the party. And yes, this branch is much more well-known as an artistic movement rather than a political one. Futurism in art was a movement that had adherents all over the world, but in Italy, they got distinctly political. They embraced the ideas of vitality, power, technology, youth. Anything that was new to the world were things to be sought after. These men wanted to free Italy from its backwardness and eliminate all the regionalism. They didn't see a lot of value in the traditions of the old Italy the languid villas in the countryside, the deference to a decrepit and defamed clergy, the visionless politicians. And they weren't especially keen on the egalitarian future the socialists advocated for either. They wanted a chance to stand out and make a mark. They wanted fast cars they could show off, daring aerial stunts to perform. 
And if you think that fascism might make a strange bedfellow for the more artsy-fartsy types, they also had a strange fascination with violence. The love of action extended to the shot of a bullet, the explosion of a shell, and the roar of an engine. One of the founders of futurism, Filippo Marinetti, joined his futurist movement with the fascist party early and provided the initial manifesto for the ideology. He was also an ex-soldier who advocated violence to tear down society and rebuild it in a new image. One of the most dramatic and famous examples of this anger came in the form of the seizure of the port city of Fayum, or Rijeka as it's known today. The city was well within what would become the state of Yugoslavia, more specifically Croatia, and also well within what had been promised Italy as well. When it became obvious that the peace treaty brewing in Paris would not award the city to Italy, and also seeing as how the entire region was in chaos owing to the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, a very special adventurer saw fit to step in. Gabriel D'Annunzio was a great many things over the course of his life, but here he was the most important thing he would ever be. Before the war, he had built a reputation as a nationalist intellectual with a, shall we say, eclectic body of work and a well-publicized sex life. When the war came, he flew propaganda missions over Vienna, dropping leaflets onto the streets from his biplane. He wound up losing an eye after one such adventure and gained his characteristic eye patch as a result. After the war, he fell in with the fascists and, due to his charisma and notoriety, became its leading figure for a time. He, like so many others, had been outraged by Italy's denial of more of its war gains. Unlike so many others, though, Dionisio planned to do something about it. A fairly short distance from the new Italian border, Fiume was a city of only 50,000 people, but populated by mostly Italians. He saw the town as rightfully belonging to Italy, and launched his great quixotic adventure. In September of 1919, he assembled a band of 2,000 veterans and marched on Fiume. He brushed aside the multinational force occupying the city and wound up murdering nine French soldiers. Not wanting to provoke a fight over so small a prize, the international community washed their hands of Fiume, and Dionuzio and his band were able to take the town over and send off a request to Rome for annexation. In the whole of this podcast, you really won't find a more odd example of individual adventurism than this. He had no plan beyond seizing the town and declaring it Italian and his stated aims were only vaguely elaborated upon. He simply knew that he needed to act, and so he did. His antics provide a good foreshadowing to the eventual rise of fascism in Italy proper. He had all the elements, right down to being referred to as El Duce. The government of the city was technically totalitarian, but really a standard cult of personality, and everybody knew it. He delivered his edicts over his micro-kingdom via the balcony of a multi-story building. He introduced the Roman salute, the hard horizontal arm outstretched forward, as a means of greeting. He certainly hoped that the nation of Italy would rally to him and bring the city into the fold. That might at least justify him going out on a limb well outside the national frontier and take over a city that another state had a claim to. Initially, things really went well and his element of surprise paid off. His entry was greeted with a frenzied enthusiasm by the city's primarily Italian inhabitants. For a time, he was the master of Fiume, Il Duce, and nobody was really quite sure what to do about it. Dinuzio himself declared the city to be a part of Italy on the initial seizure in September 1919. 
But the Italian government opted for a course of non-confrontation, setting up a blockade of the city and tut-tutting him to go back home, which was hilariously anticlimactic to those seeking a battle for Italy's soul, and also a good example of moderation actually being the smart decision. Sending in troops would have made him a martyr, and supporting him would have returned him home as a conquering hero. Letting him and his erstwhile soldiers twist in the wind on the wrong side of the Adriatic was the best way to handle the situation. Moreover, while Fiume was an Italian town, the same could not be said of the hinterland surrounding the city, which, you know, was kind of the whole demographic basis for the Entente not giving it to Italy in the first place. So now, Dionuzio was stuck in a city with a few thousand followers, and they weren't getting help from home and going out to the countryside was a non-starter as the Slovenes and Croatians living outside city limits were much less sympathetic to foreign nation-building. But he also had gone too far to simply back down now. Always keep in mind with Dinuzio, this isn't your typical politician we're dealing with. He was an adventurer and romantic in an older style. His only three consistent beliefs were in his nation, engaging in perpetual action, and himself. The cataclysms at the end of the Great War created a vacuum where he could go have a personal odyssey in front of a global audience, which suited his pathological need for attention. Once his initial overture for annexation was declined, he settled in to have a go at actually governing the city, which he very much so had not planned for on the outside of the expedition. While the Fiume adventure was starting to transform into an ongoing thing, the elections of 1919 finally actually happened. Oh boy, did it make a bunch of rich people mad. The socialists managed to rack up 156 seats out of 508 in Parliament, with 100 going to the Catholic PPI, and finally 220 going to the old network of liberal parties. Now, on the surface, this was a liberal victory, but if you are familiar with parliamentary politics, you know this can turn into a mess real fast. And it did. The liberals had the most seats but they were fragmented over a dozen political parties, which I am not going to describe, with no clear leadership. Our old friend Giovanni Giolitti traditionally held the keys to the kingdom in these scenarios, but his unpatriotic opposition to the war had soured many on, on his leadership. And he himself wasn't too keen on jumping back into the thick of things, given the state of politics at the time. Without any party getting a clear majority, though, a coalition would need to be formed. For the liberals, this clearly was going to mean cutting a deal with the PPI, as even reforming Catholics were better than inviting the proletariat into power. From June 1919, the Prime Minister had been Francesco Nitti, and the elections were pretty much a death knell for the stability of his government. Before, the nation was becoming increasingly unwieldy, and central authority seemed at a loss to stem the social movements roiling the country. After the elections, he would not find much comfort coming from the PPI. They were demanding a clear and committed policy of reform up front before committing to participating in any parliamentary government. All Nidi was prepared to offer were empty promises predicated on not upsetting the existing power structure too much. Now, that might not be too reassuring as to national stability, but there really wasn't an alternative just yet to the liberals. Just Despite being the single largest party, the socialists lacked viable allies to form a government, and they were, as always, mistrustful of the whole process anyway. Instead, the socialists decided to lean even harder on action that they were much more comfortable engaging in. 
By the fall of 1919, they had already set up the so-called Red Army of Turin to guard working-class interests against the authorities and fascist gangs. The example would be followed elsewhere as the proletariat coalesced and started imposing itself on the ground. Going into 1920, they would raise the stakes further, escalating from simple protests and strikes into full-on takeovers. In April 1920, there was a general strike in Turin and in parts of the greater Piedmont region. It was at this stage that the workers were really getting organized, and they started to see their collectives as a viable alternative to a government that they felt never actually represented them. This went beyond the normal labor union you might be imagining. Instead, they were more like full-on workers' councils. Conditions, wages, and issues of operation would now be decided by workers alone. A big problem, though, was that much of this workers' movement was distinctly apolitical. That might sound weird, but these workers' councils didn't actually follow the national-level socialist leadership. This was a natural expression of the workers' desire for change, and they didn't want the baggage of traditional labels. This didn't sit well with the socialist leadership, and later in the summer of 1920 they decided not to call for a general strike nationwide based on the lack of cooperation they were getting in Piedmont which meant that the workers over there were left to their own devices and lacked national support. Which, yes, was just another lovely example of leftist movements splintering over personal preferences and really, really losing the big picture there. The northern workers weren't the only ones getting in on the action either. Down south, the conditions were different what with the old landholders hiring paid labor during the harvest seasons instead of consistent hourly wage labor. The nature of this unpredictable system of employment ensured much of the working population endured a constant flow between one level of poverty and another as work came and went. And speaking of agonized landless workers, there was that little matter of the government having made vague promises of providing land to soldiers after the conclusion of the war. And 1919 was a very big year for demobilizing peasants as they returned home, back to the old poverty and servitude. These guys that had been trained to fight and had gone through grueling years of mountain and hill fighting. Too bad for them, the government decided they were going to delay honoring or just ignore those old land promises. But the battle-hardened needy weren't ready to give in just yet. They did what you might expect them to do short of a full-on rebellion. They started occupying the great estates. It started in the Lazio region of central Italy, the area surrounding Rome in the spring of 1919, and spread south by the year's end. The socialist presence in the south of Italy wasn't too great, so these disturbances were more of a traditional peasant movement than a Leninist call to revolution. Not to say the socialists weren't represented in some places. Uh, Lazio and further south of Apulia, down in the boot hill of Italy, certainly counted strong socialist support. But it was mostly local Catholic leaders looking out for their flocks in this case. These areas would prove to be the heartlands of the Catholic PPI support, as for all the party's deficiencies, it at least made some effort at helping normal people. The demands were pretty simple. Increased wages when working on the estates, and decreased rents when leasing out plots of land for personal use. Still, the disruptions gave local elites some pause, as they now had to reckon with freshly enfranchised mass movements. Further north, agricultural unrest had a different character, partly owing to the higher degree of education and prior political engagement, and partly due to a greater prevalence of sharecropping. 
The North saw a lot more cash crops being grown instead of traditional foodstuffs. Under the sharecropping system, there were landholders holding estates as per usual, but instead of a cash wage, the laborer would be paid with a portion of the crop, usually around half of what the worker harvested. During the good times of high demand, this could be a good thing, relatively speaking, for both parties. The term cash crop comes from the fact that the produce could be turned around at a much higher price than, say, using the, f- the land to grow boring old wheat. The post-war was a problem, though, in that with escalating prices for basic foodstuffs meant demand for the non-essentials was depressed, and all of a sudden that partial harvest wasn't looking too good. And the landowners hardly held matters in the years leading up to this point. Year after year, they tried to transfer more of the planting and harvesting costs onto the laborer, and then turn around and claim an ever greater share of the harvest for themselves. This came to a head and finally broke the system in the unrest in 1919. Farm workers started turning en masse to the major unions in the agricultural sector, the Catholic CIL and the Socialist Federterra. Out of a population of almost 36 million in Italy, the CIL could boast 1.25 million members and the Federterra a solid 900,000. So these were fairly major organizations. The increased level of worker organization was highlighted in the Tuscany region in July 1920. For generations, landholders had been content that their relationship to the workers was that of a benevolent parent. Imagine their shock when over a half million workers went on strike. Given that the total labor pool in Tuscany only just breached the 700,000 mark, the landowners were faced with either giving in or just not having a harvest that year. They gave in. The workers managed to score a better contract for their work, this time more than half the harvest and a fair split in costs to actually plant the harvest. And a bit newer to the realm of sharecropper demands was that now the workers would have a say in how the entire operation was ran, which really didn't sit well with landowners, as they were accustomed to having their way as the owner-operators. This story was repeated throughout 1920, as the socialists pressed hard to gain support among agricultural regions, securing similar victories in the Po River Valley and in Apulia in the south. They mirrored their economic success with electoral successes as well. Not only did they pick up a great deal in the national parliament, but they also scored huge gains in local elections in the major farming areas in 1920. In addition addition to this, the socialists started making all labor hirings go through the Federterra, meaning that to even hire laborers in some places, employers would have to go through them. At this point, the major landholders started to get really antsy. They had been forced to give in to contractual demands that had severely crimped their profits. Plus, they were losing their grip on the political scene, so it was appearing unlikely that they could engineer a way to reverse their losses. I'm going to leave you for a moment tantalizingly close to what some outside-the-box thinking is going to lead the landholders to do. Prime Minister Nitti was really in a bind now. The country was coming apart at the seams, and the economic situation had to be addressed as quickly as possible. The entire reason why Italy gave up on so many of its wartime demands was to try and get some much-needed relief from its allies. But it wasn't enough, and by mid-1920, the internal disturbances and the continued embarrassment of the Fiume fiasco, which, to be fair, was at least contained, brought Nitti to the point where he had to resign in June 1920. Now, you might imagine this would be a time for a fresh face, a leader with some real vision, 
somebody who didn't have the baggage of the past. You would be wrong, though. The governing liberals managed to secure Giolitti, another term as prime minister. So now, the message coming from Rome was that there weren't going to be any of the radical changes that were being demanded by all corners. Giolitti had a plan, though, that under different circumstances might actually have worked out for the liberal order. Giolitti may be older at this point, but he was still a crafty political manager, if nothing else. Recognizing there wasn't much he could do, he simply laid back and adopted a passive stance. Now, why the hell would he do this at this time? Well, the socialist leadership, for one. They were only loosely in control of everything going on, and really didn't have a larger plan of action. So, Giolitti's plan was largely to call their bluff and let them strike, agitate, whatever. What eventually happened was that the workers found themselves in local control here and there, but nationally they couldn't bring about a lasting agenda. What would eventually happen would be a dissipation of revolutionary fervor, and a window for an accommodation would open. The first part at least happened, but unfortunately the situation had gone too far for the latter to occur. The labor movements had made large gains, and had cut too deeply into the interests of the elites. This couldn't just be written off as a temporary electoral fluke that would never repeat itself either. The old interests would have to reassert themselves quickly if the old privileges were to be restored, and Giolitti's method was deemed by many a panicked employer as far too little when it appeared as if the entire country would turn red and be overtaken by the masses. So those employers decided to start calling in the fascists, who were only too happy to send in a squad to crack some skulls. Now, what had Mussolini as Mary Band been up to so far in all this? Both a little and a lot. Much of the movement's focus had gone to supporting Dionuzio over in Fiume, with thousands of potential squadrists heading abroad to the close, yet very far away, port. This siphoned off a lot of manpower that could have been turned against the socialists back home early on. And Dionuzio himself was a tangible thorn in the side of Mussolini. Keep in mind it was Dionuzio who had the real national profile, and who at this exact moment was the more inspirational figure. Being stuck over in Fiume had its downsides, though. Namely, being isolated from national politics, which Mussolini used to at least partially solidify the party around him back home. He would publicly back Dionuzio and sing his praises, all the while hoping he never came back. The main problem for the, par- for the fascist party, though, was its confused hybrid of nationalist and leftist politics. This coupled with the previously discussed immaturity of the movement and its insistence that traditional politics could be bypassed meant that when the late 1919 elections came around, the fascists were badly trounced. Remember when I reviewed the results and didn't mention them? Well, they didn't get any parliamentary seats. And Mussolini received so few votes personally that the socialists paraded a coffin around Milan with his name on it. The newspaper Avanti gloated over its ex-editor's seeming political demise. After the elections, Prime Minister Nitti even ordered his arrest over fascist support for Dionuzio. But this was more of a sending-a-message kind of move, as Mussolini was, quick- was quickly released, and Nitti commented that he was politically broken. It was thought that Mussolini had taken his shot and lost. Except this hadn't been a death blow, and next week we'll see how the fascists change tactics. 
I'll give you a small spoiler. They decide to get more violent. I'll see you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.